0: Welcome to Capital Close Up. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet and podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening by podcast, please subscribe. We're brought to you today by the Capitol Center for the Arts in Concord, New Hampshire. Two sensational venues for New Hampshire's premier performing arts. Center, uh, the Chubb Theater, and the new Bank of New Hampshire stage. Check out the website at ccanh.com. And speaking of the Capital Center for the Arts, a place I know something about because I was the first chairman of the board and worked so hard with so many people in our community to get the place up and running. Now it's an institution with history Uh, We have, uh, we're on our third executive director at the Capital Center for the Arts, and Sal Prizio, the new executive director of the Capital Center for the Arts, is our guest this morning.
1: Sal, welcome to Capital Close-Up. Good morning, Paul. It's great to be here, and thank you for such a wonderful introduction. Oh, sure. You know, the
0: the least we can do is is give effusive introductions. But one of the things (laughs) I wanted to do um, on today's show was sort of introduce you to the Concord community. I know there have been some news articles, and those are great. But now we get to hear from the man himself. Um, Because the Capital Center for the Arts, which used to be just a dream a gleam in the eye of a bunch of fanatics who said you know we can have a world class performing arts center in Concord New Hampshire even we're no longer a city in a coma and things are 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 jumping you know things are jumping in Concord now. Uh, there's a beautiful Main Street, and irrespective of the time with COVID, um, uh, you know it's it's 2022 all of a sudden. And what we dreamed of in 1990 as a as a place to present world class artists and for the community to gather again is now a reality, and it's a fascinating time of transition. Um, I, I was on the committee that hired M.T. Menino, the first executive director. Then we've had Nikki Clark. It's, it's, it's crazy for me to think of, okay, now, now it's time. Now it's time for new energy. So take us back, Sal, to the beginning. A little, we're going to play a little bit of this is your life. Where, oh, did, <laughs> where did you, where did you grow up? What was it like? And uh, I, I we're going to sort of I want to figure out how it how it is that you
1: ended up at the Capitol Center for the Arts. But let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I am. I am a nutmegger, as they call us in Connecticut. I grew up in Glastonbury, Connecticut, Apple Farm country. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I you know, my, my family moves uh, to from Hartford to Glastonbury, Connecticut back in 1978 and mm-hmm. uh, I went through the entire Glastonbury school system and loved it there. And uh, afterwards, I went to Northeastern University, so I started making my way up this way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah, you're, you're 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 a New England guy. I am a New England guy. You know, uh, you know, th- though I went to uh, Northeastern University for music industry, and then spent a good chunk of time in New York State. Um, either in New York city, I, I worked in the record industry there. And then afterwards started in, you know, my life side of, uh, the performing arts, uh, in upstate New York, I always loved the charm and the people of new England. And I'm happy to be back in the, in the fold as it were. Well, I want to unpa- unpack what you just told
0: me for a second. So, so in growing up in Glastonbury, going to Northeastern, are you, are you, are you a musician? Do you play an instrument?
1: I I am. Uh, yes, uh, I saw Back to the Future in 1985 when I was the tender age of nine years old, and I said I have to learn how to play guitar. And my mother was like, "Well, that's Chuck Berry playing." So, and my mother, I grew up in a house where Motown was prevalent everywhere, and right. uh, I started playing guitar at the age of nine, and I have still played to this day. Uh, last night I was playing my guitar. It's I find it meditative. Um, relaxing, enjoyable. Uh, I played in a band for years. When I was in New York City, when I was working in the record business, I uh, was in a band that toured and had, you know, three albums out and I did all of that. So I, I love, I look at the performing arts from the side of the management as well as the artists.
0: So you and I share an addiction. Um, hello, my name is Paul and, and I'm an addict. Uh, I'm a guitar player. And um, I've got guitars and amps, and playing a play. i played in bands all my life. I met my wife playing playing music in a band. Um, she put an Sam? ad in. She put an ad in the Boston Phoenix looking for a guitar player, and I answered back in 1977. And uh, we've been married and playing music ever since. And um, I mean, I'm play. I have a, I have a, I have a band now called Calamity Jane. We're in the middle of doing some recording an EP. So to me, it's a very present. It, it's a totally present. It's like not in the past. It it's happening. It's happening now. But so I got to ask, what kind of guitar are you playing? Uh, acoustic, electric? Uh, I'm assuming. It's an electric guitar because to play in a band, you generally are going to be playing electric guitar. So so who are your influences and what did you play? Or were you lead, were you the lead guitar player, the rhythm guitar player, all the above? Of course, of course. Well, what, was the, what was the name of the band? Come on, give us some details. All right, I'll,
1: I'll hit you up with some of the details. First of all, yeah. Paul, you know, as being a fellow guitar player, there's no such thing as just what guitar do you play? It's what yeah. collection of guitar do you, guitars do you have, right? Right, right, right. Um, So... I am a Fender guy first of all. I uh-huh. uh, have been since, you know, I went down to Daddy's Junkie Music in, in Boston and upgraded to my first, you know, real good like guitar. It's uh, I'm a I'm a Fender guy uh, at heart. Uh, I'm a Taylor acoustic guy although I wish, you know, I was getting, you know, sponsorship money from these guys, but uh-huh. um, do I play uh, I am a I would define myself as a rhythmic lead, more of the edge from the school of the edge from uh you know uh-huh. uh, i don't i'm not a shredder by any stretch uh right. the band was called even star you can find our stuff on spotify actually to this day um, uh-huh. but there was also another group out of the philippines called even star so don't get the two confused um vastly different music started out as an acoustic band more in the line have you ever heard of a group called guster sure yeah. So our music started out as two acoustic guitars and a percussionist. And then we evolved over time into the drums, bass, uh, lead singer, played most mostly the acoustic stuff. And I would play the electric kind of lead guitar as mm-hmm. it were. So are you a guy who do you read music? Do you do it all by ear? I do it all by ear, mm-hmm. I, I, although I do push my children to read music because yeah. there is a huge advantage in that. I can read tab.
0: Yep. I agree. You and I, well, you and I, we, we, you see, we're finding out we share, we share an awful lot because I do it all by ear and yeah. uh, never learned to read music. I did grow up uh, playing finger style, uh, blues guitar, um, uh, you know, at a tender age, uh, traveling down to Greenwich village when I was uh, when I was a kid in braces with my blue blazer, um, uh, going to the folklore center in New York city in the sixties and uh, studying the uh, Mississippi John Hurt fingerstyle guitar, nice. I mean, you know, it goes for me, it, it goes way back. And um, so so you you uh, with an interest in music, it seems pretty natural that you studied music industry at Northeastern um, and uh, you headed to New York after that.
1: Yeah. So after uh, I went to college at Northeastern and graduated, I actually spent about a year in Connecticut at UConn. That's where we, the lead singer and I, that was, he was a good friend of mine. Um, he was going to school there. So I was waiting for him to finish up. And we did a year there, uh, put out a record and got a nice little audience going. But we wanted to go to New York City to you know become big rock stars. So I got a job at Electra Records uh, uh-huh. that, to pay the bills during the day on the finance side of things. Uh, so, cause those were the jobs that paid. And at nights uh, we were in rehearsals and on the weekends we were either playing in New York city or we would branch out in our beat up old FedEx van and go to whatever shows we could get in, you know, whether it was in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Connecticut, you know, you name it. Traveling down to, you know, Philly to do gigs, uh, cutting our teeth, getting good as a band. We had two different types of gigs we would do. We would do our if you were in the city, uh, any one of the cities, you would do your 45 minute set where you played your originals. And to make money, we would go to like, you know, the Poconos and do the four hour cover set to make money so that we could save up for our next record. So
0: we got we yeah. got pretty
1: good at, uh, you know, both sides of the spectrum on those things. So what was it like working at Electra? And by the way, you know, folks,
0: uh, for those of you who are listening, it, it's not a slam dunk to get a job at a record company i mean that's that's it's hard it's hard to do there's there's yeah. a lot of competition a lot of people uh, who are especially you know musicians looking for day gigs want to get jobs in the record industry or at least what was the record industry at the turn of the century right. i mean the there turn. you are at the turn of the century in the record business when by the way There was still a record business, and people were doing live gigs. And remember, this is pre-pandemic. Nobody's worried about the pandemic. And and people were putting out music that you could sell because you could put out CDs and sell CDs. Streaming at the point, you know, was just a gleam in somebody's eyes. It was a dream. I mean, people knew about it, but All the music hasn't hadn't moved to the Internet. Um, So you could sell CDs and actually people would pay. People would would pay, you know, like 15 or 20 bucks for a CD, a physical object you held in your hand. So it was totally different. So um, getting the job at Electra must have been
1: pretty exciting. I was thrilling. I worked in Rockefeller Center on the 17th floor. I'll never forget it. And when I got there was just when AOL was talking about taking over Time Warner, which Electra was under. So once that merger happened, it was literally the biggest merger in corporate history. Um, Obviously, it did not turn out very well. However, the energy at a place like Electra, which was under the the Warner Electra asylum uh, branch, was insane. It was like, you know, that was the time of Metallica was still at the top of the charts. ACDC was still putting out. Multi-million se- sellers. Missy Elliott was the biggest artist in pop and hip-hop. Um, it was an exciting, exciting place to be. My, wow. my office window overlooked uh, where you see the Christmas tree every year for yep. uh, Rockefeller Center. Um, uh-huh. it, it was a great place to spend my 20s. I don't, I don't, I don't uh, begrudge a minute of it. And uh, one of the really fun things about working there, too, is I was there when Rick Ocasek was the head of a and for Electra Records. Oh and man, all, yeah. So the A&R guys loved us in finance because we approved their budgets. <laughs> so, right, 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 right. So we and so, were and we I always wondered why finance and A&R were on the same floor with each other, but it was a it was a great time to be there. And you know the the A uh the AR guys would invite us to showcases and things like that. And I got to see you know bands like Jet before they blew up and became huge at you know small places like Mercury Lounge and things like that. So sure
0: sure you know i for when mercury lounge man i um i was working with a band not that long ago maybe 8 9 years ago um, um and uh i got to, i got they played the mercury lounge pretty um pretty pretty frequently it's one of those downtown haunts and in New York city. What a, what a time, what a time to, you know, I mean, so you were kind of there during what was still a, a pretty golden era for the music business selling, selling CDs, big artists um, in the heart of New York city and playing rock and roll. Pretty, pretty exciting. Did, did Electra ever think about signing even (laughs) star?
1: (laughs) No. No, so, I mean, you know, at the time too, the competition was so fierce, right? And a lot of that too was about, well, where are you playing? And what do your numbers look like at the clubs? And they, you know, that's, you know, it was also at the time that like the strokes were, you know, that's, they were, they were the buzz in the city. Right. And our stuff was a little more pop than that. It was a little bit more of the, I'm trying to think of a comparison of a band, but like more of the vertical horizon and things like that, those types of bands. And we were probably at the tail end of that sort of thing. So I think everybody was looking forward to the next, at that time it was starting to become that retro rock thing was starting to really pick up and, you know, timing is everything in this business In that business. Yeah. Um, But I still, I, you know, you know, playing great places like CBGB's in the elbow room. And there were so many of them that we, we had the opportunity to play and play with you know other great performers. And the experiences that I had playing in that band was just so informative to what I do now and right. looking at it from a different perspective, so.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. I, I had a career as a lawyer. And uh, before I was a congressman, I was a lawyer, but I've always been a musician. One of the things that was really always interesting to me was, is, you know, as a lawyer um, in New Hampshire, there a, it was a respectable profession. Um, and there was a certain amount of respect for being an attorney, although when I when I did go to Congress, I I My, uh, what I was fond of saying to people, I think I found the only profession where people think less of me than they did when I was an attorney. So, but, but, but all, but all that aside, that the transition from from being a lawyer and giving people advice and going to court and, you know, all the things I did as a trial lawyer in New Hampshire, including working as an assistant attorney general. And I mean, it was a respectable profession. And then I'd get into dealing with club owners as as the guitar player in the band and i gotta say we were treated like dirt we were treated like you know i mean if we were treated we we were never treated as well as their staff we were like an afterthought. We were, I mean, the entertainment, we were, we were cast to say they thought nothing of, of, of canceling our gigs for any reason, not paying us, and telling us to, you know, just get out of here. We're, you know, you're done. Get, I mean, that it was a very, those kinds of experiences are a pretty, they're character building for one thing, yeah, but yeah. it also it gives you a real perspective on presenting artists on how to treat artists on what it's like to be an artist on what artists need or want or deserve Uh, because in today's music industry it's gotten really tough to be an artist
1: yeah Uh, you know there's a great example of that is uh this is a long time ago this club doesn't exist anymore but i maybe you remember it but Uh, On Lansdowne Street, there used to be a place called Mama Kin, which which was Aerosmith's bar, club that they had started. And one of the missions they did with the place was to take all the things that they hated about when they were on tour with these small clubs and make it better. Great sound system, great stage, lovely back room, green room areas. And they treated the artists really well. And as a result, everybody wanted to play there because it was one of the few places you could play that the venue gave you some monicum of respect. Right. And the only everything you do in the music business uh, when you're a touring artist or building an audience is there's a there's a level of honesty to it. Right. Because the clubs start treating you better when you bring 150 people out. Right. Like you've earned their respect finally. So it's. I, I don't disagree with you at all in that thing that it's, there's a relentless nature and it's so tough to be an artist and with those sorts of things and everything had to be earned. The difference nowadays is it's, you know, record labels are, are marketing firms. They're not, they're not, you know, the, the, the song is a commercial essentially for the brand of the artist.
0: Mm-hmm. Not,
1: they're not all like that. Don't get me wrong. There's plenty of unbelievable stuff that's, that you hear on Spotify and stream, other streaming platforms but in your pop genre, the artists are selling a few songs as quickly as they can so they can turn around and then start a clothing line or, a, you know, a, a soda brand or whatever. It's it's changed quite a bit, whether it's harder or not. I, I think, you know, you see the advent of the, you know, the, the shows where somebody just goes on and sings a few songs. and next thing you know, they get a, a record deal. Yeah. You know, Dave Grohl speaks to that really well. He says, you should. You should be a band and you should be awful for an amount a certain amount of time. And that's how you really get your chops. And you get the self-confidence to understand that no, I am good or we are good because we've been bad for so long.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of ba-
1: <laughs> there are a lot of musicians who stay bad for a really long time. Long
0: time. And 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 you know, I mean, it, it the business has changed so much because yeah. physical sales are. Have changed uh, vinyl now outsells CDs, so there's been a huge transition there. Who knows if that's a fad or not? Um, artists who depend on the streaming services for a living are maybe there's four of them. I'm being a little hyperbolic, but you know the streaming revenue for artists from streaming is 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 a real sore spot. One one thing, Sal, I wanted to, just to 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 follow up on was. You mentioned really quickly when we were talking before that you met your wife through music, and uh, I want to hear a little bit about that. How did that happen?
1: What's going on? <laughs> That's great. Uh, so when I was telling you about how I went back to Yukon or to Connecticut, my lead singer in my band was at UConn, and he and I decided to we're gonna we're gonna do this band for real. We had played together in high school. We take a break during college a little bit, and then our first gig back his girlfriend invited uh, a roommate of hers which happened to be my wife to become my wife to the gig and I was speaking with her shortly before I went on stage and we just started striking up a conversation things like that she didn't know who I was and and all that sort of thing and lo and behold uh, every time there was a party on campus and things like that I kept seeing her at these things and she loves music just as much as I do. She actually plays drums. So I was like, oh, this is like, this is, this is fantastic. So, yeah. Um, and funny enough, she actually got to New York City before I did, because she got an internship at uh, Verve Music Group. She was at one of the oh. best jazz labels in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was even further motivation for me to, to get to New York City. So um, there I was, I moved uh, to, to Brooklyn, New York my girlfriend at the time was all of a sudden working at one of the best uh record labels in the world and uh she she provided a, a strong uh pathway for me as much as inspiration that you know she was uh, she was in their international department using her french uh to to kind of get her way into that whole thing and then and then uh here we are you know 20 some odd years later we've been married 17 years we got three kids that all play music and drum set set up in our new house here at concord along with my guitars and everything else and oh how cool is that how cool is that so she's still playing yeah she still plays i mean you know yeah uh our our jam sessions now are more of a family affair than anything else but it's also great stress really for her she'll put on her headphones some foo fighters and i hear her you know banging away banging away at those skins right right how old are your kids my oldest is fourteen. My middle is eleven, and my youngest is six. I have three and, boys. And what are they playing? So my oldest plays French horn at school, uh-huh. but at home he also plays the keys and he plays some drums. My middle plays flute, bass, uh, and my youngest, yeah, we have a little drum kit for him, and he he bangs away with mom on the on the drums.
0: oh well. so so you have the Prizio or you have the Prizio band. I mean, it's yeah. like, it, it, that's the cool that's the coolest thing you know my kids were home over um, my kids were home over over the holidays and uh, my son uh, went to Berkeley he uh, was in the recording engineering program uh, Uh, department he's he's got brilliant he's got brilliant ears and he is a shredder he's got a band out on out in Oakland that's making some noise in the Bay Area called Vannon Uh, Desert of Our Dreams by the way folks is his latest production you ought to check it out it's like Metallica meets Pink Floyd it's it's just it's an it's an unbelievable it's unbelievable Um, so we were home you know and we we play, and I, I'm in awe of his guitar chops. And my daughter is a singer-songwriter, so I had her put vocals um, on an EP that I'm that I'm working on. She did uh, vocals on on two of the tunes that I'm going to put out at, at, as an EP. My wife is a singer. Um, a lot of people in Concord know Pego because she also is the conductor of the Songweavers at the Concord Community Music School, which is a great place for for kids. To learn about about music, so having having music in the family is a pretty extraordinary experience. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing like it.
1: No, I, I always say this to my friends: it is the equivalent of "Hey, Dad, want to go have a catch?" Yeah, when right. my kids say, "Hey, Dad, you want to go play some music?" Yeah. Yes, I do.
0: Yes, I do. Right. It's, the,
1: it's one of the music is one of the strongest connections I've had throughout my entire life, and the fact that. I get to share it with my wife and kids is, you know, that's, that's heaven for me. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, look I had an electric guitar and amp in my office in Congress and uh you know I mean I I played I just I I couldn't I couldn't not play every day so it's wonderful. So so there let's go back a little bit. There we are We're, you're in New York City. You've got a a girlfriend working in the record business. You're playing rock and roll at night. You're working in a great record company. I mean Electra has had Electra is just had had such an incredible yeah. history in the yep. music business in terms of, you know, I'm thinking of some of the the great folk artists who were on Electra. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was really important. And at some point you transitioned into um helping to run uh performing arts centers. Um how, how did that come about?
1: yeah so really the long story short on that is what i alluded to it earlier is the aol merger um after a few years that proved to be a very unsuccessful merger and a lot of the labels actually at the time Electra got consolidated now they're they're back now but at the time they got consolidated so i bounced around between a couple of different other labels but after a, a, a few years more than a few years almost 10 years in new york city my wife and i uh we actually got married um and then, you know, playing in a touring band and stuff like that's fun when you're 22, but when you're getting close to 30, I started to look at, uh, you know, what are the other ways I can still engage in the music business and still have a home life? Um, and so we decided we were going to, I was going to open up a performing venue of my own. So I opened this place called Bread and Jam, which was a coffee house in upstate New York, near where my wife's from, uh, in Cohoes. And uh So that was my first foray into doing live performance as a manager essentially in that way. And I was able to foster great relationships from that. Um, About two years into that, uh, the president of the College of St. Rose saw the work I was doing there and um, asked me if I would be interested in running their performing arts center, which was a 400 seat uh, recital hall room on their campus. And I did that for seven years. Um, I built up a great concert program there um, we had, you know, balanced budgets, great audiences. I always looked at it as their division one football team because it was a great way for me to engage the community as well as like the bigger donors and saying, you know, look, here's Chick Korea, here's BB King, and they're on your college campus, you know, those sorts of things. Um, and then after that, Philip Morris, who was the CEO of uh, Proctor's, saw the work that I was doing there. And said, hey, would you like to come join our team at Proctor's? And I went from, you know, booking 25 shows a year to uh, pre-pandemic at Proctor's. I was booking over 500 shows a year because we had the contract to book Rivers Casino, as well as all of our venues. So there I was booking everything from jazz duos all the way up to some of the biggest artists you've ever heard of for outdoor 5,000 seat kind of concerts. So oh. that's essentially the evolution. I went from the coffee house to booking, you know, eight different venues um, and all the time engaging uh, different community and civic partners and learning along the way and just trying to remember as much information as I possibly could. Yeah.
0: So, so I am, uh, uh, I confess, I'm unfamiliar with Proctor's. I don't know. Um,
1: uh, I don't know what it is or even where it is. Where is so, Proctor's? So Proctor's theater is in downtown Schenectady, New York. And right. when Philip, Philip got there, Proctor's was uh, in need of a renovation in a downtown city that was very, uh, it was post-industrial right. and a lot of boarded up windows, a lot of, not a lot of things going on. <laughs> and through the arts, he was able to reinvigorate that city. Now I, not single-handedly. Nobody does these things single-handedly. However, people wanted to go see world-class touring Broadway downtown at Proctors. He saw that need. He maximized that. And through that, restaurants started coming back. Big corporate investors came in and put some headquarters into the place. And now downtown Schenectady is uh, its a beacon for how you can uh, reinvigorate a, a former, uh, you know, industrial area. GE's headquarters are in Schenectady, New York.
0: And they went right. from
1: huge numbers of people there to a much more scaled down operation. And the city didn't couldn't recover from that. Um, until the arts stepped in. So I'm always a huge proponent of arts being a, an economic driver for revitalization, revitalization of the city.
0: Boy, oh boy, that sure sounds familiar to me, because that was the story of the Capital Center for the Arts. Yeah. I mean, you know, nobody, uh, if, if we go back to 1990, it was a recession. Um, uh, the storefronts were, 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 you know, downtown Concord was kind of a slow, sleepy place. Uh, stores were boarded up. And the, the economy was terrible. Uh, there was this, you know, big, big theater that was basically people had tried to run it as a for-profit venue. And um, nobody, you know, nobody had made a go of it there, The famous story was um, Itzhak Perlman came to do a show and, and there was no way to he, he was in a wheelchair. So there's no way to get him on the stage. They had to rent a forklift to uh, get him up uh, into into the theater because they, the, what we what we have now for the Capital Center for the Arts was the Capital Theater. The heat didn't work. He He played he played his gig in half gloves so that his hands wouldn't freeze while he was playing, uh, playing his fiddle. Um, It was just, it it was, it was a mess and nobody knew what to do with the place. It was clear. It couldn't, it couldn't be run as a for-profit venue. And, you know, people were talking about taking it down and putting up a garage. And uh, there were a few intrepid souls who said, no, it could be the heartbeat of the community. And uh, now today you are, Presiding over a, a, a going concern with all kinds of interesting challenges, in the in to 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 say the least. But it it sounds like your background as a musician and your uh, experience in in working on a project that was so important to the economic revitalization of a post-industrial town is going to serve you in 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 really good uh, stead. What what were some of the I mean, at Proctor's, my understanding is that there is a main stage of about twenty seven hundred, a theater of about four hundred and forty and then a a a hall, the universal presentation hall of about seven hundred plus that there were casinos. Um, uh, That's a that's a huge multifaceted um, operation. What were the challenges in in keeping all of those venues going with different kinds of bookings, different kinds of events? Uh, How did they work together? Because now at the CCA, of course, you've got two venues that you're working with. Um, But what were some of those particular challenges that you found uh, at Proctor's?
1: Well, I would say, you know, it's interesting because much like the CCA, we opened uh, Universal Preservation Hall. Uh, a week before everything shut down with the pandemic, much like Bank of New Hampshire State was only open a few months. Um, The the real challenges you you run into is how does everything intersect with itself? How do you serve the mission of the organization from all of these different aspects at the same time and have them essentially all play nice in the sandbox, right? The biggest challenges for me were I always had had to constantly switch gears between proctors it's main stage it's 400 seat room and you talk about uph and then when i was working for the casino their mission is totally different than what ours is and how do i make sure that i am segmenting what their entertainment is so that it complements what i'm doing in these other spaces not cannibalizing it and at the same time understanding that their goals and motivations are the complete opposite right whereas your non-for-profit world, you know, the places like CCA are very altruistic in their manner. Casino is cutthroat and they are, you know, very much about making the dollar the bottom line and all that sort of stuff. How long, you know, in certain ways there are some parallels between the two industries and you find that out over time but really like the heart of their motivation, is just so different. So right. how do I balance all of that? And at the same time, make sure that what I'm programming in those spaces doesn't conflict with anything else that I'm doing in the other spaces.
0: Right. right, you right. right.
1: Find, you find your sweet spots, you know, yeah. for a place like a casino, especially in a place like Schenectady, we found that like, you know, more of the, the, you know, the eighties metal and, the, and the, some of the country stuff and some of the classic rock was their sweet spot that didn't, contradict any of the things that we were doing over at the other places. So it it allowed me to build an ecosystem in Schenectady of this vibrancy, but not, like I said before, not pulling apart our audiences. Sure.
0: So let's talk about your transition. You and your family have have now moved after 10 plus years. I mean, New York City and then upstate New York. And here you are in Concord, New Hampshire. What, what, what prompted the move? What were you, what were you thinking about, and what, what did you find when you got here?
1: Uh, well, there's, I, I, there's a lot that went into consideration. Uh, what motivated me to move here after the interviews was I loved the size of the organization. I wanted to take the next step in my career, which was to to finally step up and lead an organization. And if I was going to do it, this was the right size. The board is a delight. Everybody that I've I've met and worked with on the board, um, they're actively involved and they're all passionate about this organization, but they do it in a very approachable type way. Um, I really loved the idea of this downtown. Um, I'm a big proponent of community type living, and Concord just seems to be effusive about that. And my my initial reaction since I've been here, uh, the community has just. It's been so overwhelming the amount of generosity and kindness that I've gotten since I've been here. It's almost um shocking coming from upstate new york to to hear how kind and lovely everybody is oh, which is great it's it's really a welcome new. surprise so yeah
0: yeah that's 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 nice to it's nice to hear how, yeah. how are
1: how are your kids finding school and all that? So my wife and kids are moving here on january 29th. Not here we time, yet. We, we, yeah, so we timed it with the the intersection of the uh, the the semester system of the school. So
0: sure, they, sure. they start the
1: second half of the year. Uh, yep. you know, February one.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you're coming. You're coming at a pretty wild time. I mean, uh, this tra- this transition is unlike uh, any in in our in our lifetime, at least in terms of the timing. Um, how's the CCA doing with COVID? What are your thoughts? Um, and looking ahead, um, you know, every executive director for an organization like the CCA, um, will, will end up putting, uh, putting their, their stamp, um, on, on the organization and the way, um, the way the organization works in the community and, uh, Uh, obviously fundraising is always a huge part of an executive director's job and helping to lead the organization. So how are you, how are you getting through COVID and what are you looking ahead to, uh, to, to see for the Capital center for the arts?
1: Sure. So I would say this, you know, COVID is a moment by moment, uh, proposition, you know, right now in January, um, I'm sure, as everybody's seen, we've had a lot of postponements, a lot of cancellations, uh, deferments uh, for shows because of either somebody's gotten COVID in the group or, you know, the the timing doesn't work out. Um, I am optimistic that February will change a lot of that. We'll get through the spike of the current Omicron. Um, We have to become much more adaptive to these ups and downs. So that's one of the biggest challenges I, I, I face. Walking, stepping into the organization right now is how do we prepare ourselves financially and emotionally for all of these ups and downs that we have to. We are going through. So how do we forecast these as best as possible? Um, where do I see the organization in the future? I see us maximizing uh, new platforms, uh, whether it's you know platforms like we talk, we're on right now, you know the podcasting platforms. Uh, Digital presentations might become a, uh, something uh, that we're doing in the future. We're going to expand what our offerings are. We're going to engage newer and younger audiences. And I think uh, diversification of who those audiences are uh, is a huge part of what we need to do um, to serve our entire community. And I talk about um, economic diversity. I talk about racial diversity, um, you know, any number of factors that you could think about. I really like the idea of exploring and breaking down, any of those barriers that are in place. And that that speaks to what I was talking about earlier when I say that sometimes what you need to do is break down the walls of your physical space and go present in the communities themselves. When we talk about, you know, the, there's a sizable refugee population here in Concord. Well, what are the best ways that the Capital Center can serve that community? Because at the end of the day, what I want is everybody to feel like a seat at the Capital Center belongs to them.
0: Right. Um, you know, it's it's important and it probably is something that has uh, it it's definitely something that has changed in terms of the demographics of the conquered region. The capital region has undergone a considerable shift as has as has New Hampshire. I mean, <clears throat> New Hampshire used to be pretty sleepy and now, it's a it's a busy place. The highways the highways are packed. Um, we don't, you know, COVID is kind of a is kind of a speed bump on, in the in, in a speed bump on in 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 our in our life. One that is not going to be forever. There is going to be a new normal, um, and and we'll get through it. But what's clear is that the demographics of New Hampshire are shifting uh, by significant percentage points. And the Capital Center's uh, marketing area, so to speak, is is not just limited to Concord. I mean, the Capital Center draws people from all exactly. over New
1: England, right? Exactly, exactly. So you have to look at those trends, and you have to sit there and you know, like I said to you before, it's like how do you look at you know a year, five years, ten years from now, and think about what the demographics are going to be, and start to forecast as an organization how do we adapt, how do we change? to best serve all of, all of these involved. Yeah. And to me, that's an exciting challenge. I love community engagement. I love learning from, you know, different cultures and things like that, because they bring something to the stew, as I like to call it, of creative thinking, you know, new herbs and spices, as it were, that allow us to kind of enhance our flavor palette and broaden our perspective on things. Um, that's always exciting to me. That's learning about new cultures and and working together with new partners is the way that this place is going to thrive in the future.
0: Yeah, you know, one of, I, and when you talked about um, sort of expanding the palette of the way the Capital Center for the Arts um, presents, um, it's, I think you're right on because I, you know, I, I have been, I've been thinking about, well, well, here we are, we're, we're podcasting an interview show with you and KXL the as a station, um, has, is, is now podcasting every, you know, so we're reaching yeah. our, we're, we're reaching a, a very different audience. It's a growing audience, um, that probably uh, has the uh, capacity, the possibility of reaching a much wider national audience than we would otherwise uh, be able to reach, even even though the station is expanded now to Manchester with a with a, with a new signal. Podcasting goes everywhere in the known universe, as I'm as exactly. I'm pleased to say, and uh, the opportunity um, to to collaborate for the Capital Center for the Arts, whether it's with podcasting or television or streaming uh, or other ways to expand the reach are the, those those possibilities are, are right are right here right now
1: yeah I agree and it, for me I always like to call it to extending the conversation right if we have a great artist that's coming in and perhaps is doing an educational residency and things like that if we are able to engage with them whether it's on a streaming platform or you know through radio or whatever it is it allows us to extend the conversation with that artist and increase what the ecosystem is of their imprint when they're here for whatever quantified amount of time that they're here. And if that allows us to increase our audience and or our revenue stream through multiple platforms, then why not look into those things? Why not consider the performing arts, you just gotta look at what's the stage, right? So if it's the physical stage where I sit there in person and watch it, great. If it's streaming, great. You know, it's just, it's just, it's another stage for the CCA to present to its audience. And that's the way I look at it.
0: Well, Sal Prizio, new executive director of the Capital Center for the Arts. Paul, it's been my pleasure and I look forward to doing it again very soon. I'm Paul Hodes. This is Capital Close-Up podcast wherever you're finding your podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to the CCA for being our sponsor. Folks, we'll
1: see you next week.